Welcome back to Unprecedential. I'm Adam White. Today's episode, well, I don't even know if this really counts as an episode. It's it's more a lack of an episode. No special guest, no theme. Elaine, what is it exactly that we do around here these days? I don't really know, Adam. You're just kind of stuck here with me today. For those of you who haven't already been introduced to her in previous episodes, this is Elaine Allen, my, my research assistant and producer of the podcast. We're here today basically wrap up what I guess you might call the first season of Unprecedential. In, in a little over a year and a half, we've recorded over 40 episodes on a range of topics, a range of guests, and we thought we'd take a moment to take stock of how things have gone so far before taking a break for a little bit. I've always said in the podcast that we don't want to focus too much on the Supreme Court. That's why it's unprecedented. It's not just wrapped up in Supreme Court precedents. But one Supreme Court precedent that I very much like is taking a break for the summer. And so as this podcast, like Justice Thomas, loads up its, its RV and roams across the country uh, meeting Americans and taking a little bit of a break from work, this podcast will be off the air for a little while. We have some big plans coming up, though, and, and I'll get back to that in a moment. But just to take a step back, like I said, the goal of this podcast from the very beginning was to think about American constitutionalism without just thinking about the constitutional law that comes out of the Supreme Court or is argued around the Supreme Court, thinking about the Constitution as, as not just a set of, of legal principles, although, of course, that's what it is and that's very important, but also thinking about the broader aspects of constitutional self-government that are so important to this country's history and so important today. And so we did talk about the course. We spoke with Ilya Shapiro, Cato, Dahlia Lithwick, who was a Supreme Court reporter at Slate, and others about the, the work of the court. We talked about a lot more. We focused on Congress. We focused on the presidency. It was an election year, so we focused on the Electoral College. We talked about other institutions, even institutions of education, other aspects of civil society, religion, religious communities, the family, and so on. I have to say, there were a few episodes along the way that I really liked, and, and a few of them were related to Electoral College and, and presidential elections. We did an episode with my colleague, Gary Schmidt, and his longtime collaborator, Jeffrey Toulis, the University of Texas, about presidential inaugurations, the inaugurations and, and the presidency. And then right afterward, an episode with Stephen Howard Brown, the professor who has a new book. And if you hadn't heard that episode, go back and listen to it and then buy the book on President Washington's first inauguration, the inaugural inauguration, I suppose, and, and thinking through the ways in which Washington and others self-consciously understood themselves to be part of, of nation building in, in the profoundest sense and constitution making in the profoundest sense. Elaine, of all these guests and topics that we've covered, did you have any personal favorites along the way? I did. I had a few. It was hard to think about which ones were my favorites because there was a lot of really interesting ones. But... Well, keep it to maybe the top 20 or 25. Okay. All right. I'll see if I can do that. I really liked your conversation with Dahlia Lithwick. It was about the press corps covering the Supreme Court and the role they play in Supreme Court news and how they impact the court's decisions. It was from October of 2020. We recorded it before Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, and it came out afterwards. So it was kind of an interesting timing. But I think the thing that stood out to me most about it was actually not so much the substance of the conversation, but more the reverence with which Dahlia spoke of the Supreme Court. And it just instilled in me an awareness of how important it is for the press to 
care for and revere the institutions that they're covering. Of course, that doesn't mean that there's no room for critique of the courts, but it seems like a responsible press is one of the preconditions to to good self-governance. And I thought that she embodied that spirit quite nicely. The, the Dahlia episode, I enjoyed that episode quite a lot too, actually. And one reason why is, I mean, let's call a spade a spade. Dahlia and I disagree on a lot. I mean, that would be an understatement. And we've disagreed a lot over the years. Many, many years ago, I was part of a Slate blog on constitutional law. They let you do that? Oh, yeah, I know. I snuck in. They had to find some conservatives, so they found me. And that was my first sort of interactions with her. That was a long time ago. But I mean, we disagree up and down on so many things in and around the Supreme Court. But I really enjoyed the chance to talk with her about it, especially in these times where it's so easy for us to talk to our friends. And this podcast, of course, is by and large me talking with people I, I, I tend to agree with. And I really enjoyed that conversation. Just a year or two before that episode, she had invited me down to Texas for Slate's aspect of, I think it was the Texas Tribune Festival. And I was on a panel discussion with her about the Supreme Court appointment process. It was actually in the middle of the Kavanaugh hearings. And I think the weekend of that panel was the weekend where the Senate Judiciary Committee had sent the allegations from Dr. Ford back to the FBI for a very brief investigation. So I mean, the point being, tensions were had never been higher. There was so much acrimony around the process. And I came down to Texas for this panel and Dally was the moderator, me. I think I might be wrong, but I, if I remember correctly, there's maybe three people on the left or center left and me. And I'd say the audience was, if not unanimously, anti-Kavanaugh, very close. It was almost unanimously anti-Kavanaugh. And the first time the audience really erupted against something I said, Dahlia, the, the moderator, jumped right in and said, no, 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 that's not how we're going to do this. Let's give Adam a chance to talk. And I was so struck by it at the time. I really did go down there feeling kind of like a hostile witness in a trial, although I've always enjoyed that environment. I was so struck by Dahlia's generosity in that moment that it really did force me to think a lot about how I interacted with others, including on social media. I mean, like a lot of people, I've had a few of those moments in recent years. And anyway, I was the point being, I was very glad to get Dahlia back to this show and get to talk. And, and I'm sure we could have another episode where she and I could disagree for things for hours on end. But it was nice to have one episode where she and I were able to talk face-to-face -face and, and really think through things in a, in a friendly way. Yeah, I've noticed in her writings that she is quite a forceful and articulate advocate for progressive court reforms. <laughs> but I, I think she very clearly has a good sense of civility in her public engagement with her more conservative interlocutors. So yeah. I very much admire that about her. Another interesting figure who was discussed during Unprecedential was the inconspicuous DHS. This was an episode from November 2020, so the month after the Dahlia episode, where we discussed Chad Oldfather, who is a professor of law at Marquette University, mm -hmm. his article, and it was called The Inconspicuous DHS. It's about Justice David Souter and his more subdued approach to public life. And it was kind of the way Professor Oldfather discussed David Souter was in contrast with more 
of the celebrity type of justices that we've seen in, in more recent decades, like Justice Scalia, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, even even Justice Barrett when she when she was elevated to the Supreme Court. And it it just it's kind of related to the theme of institutions and healthy cultures within institutions. Not not that, you know, Justice Scalia or Justice Ginsburg or Justice Barrett are doing anything wrong per se, but this more subdued spirit embodied by Justice Souter, I think is something that we need maybe more of on the Supreme Court. Adam, what did you think of that episode? I loved it. You're, you're clicking through Scalia, Ginsburg, and Barrett. What's the line from Shakespeare? Some people achieve great greatness, others have greatness thrust upon them. Sounds right. Justice Barrett is some version of that. Like She's never been a grandstander. She's not one to give a lot of big talks. Her rhetoric and her scholarship was never flashy. I mean, Scalia's, he's, Scalia was always an entertaining writer and a larger-than-life personality. It was only natural that he would cultivate and attract a lot of acclaim and attention on the stage of the Supreme Court. Ginsburg, I think her personality grew in the last her last 10 years on the court, beginning with a case that we won't delve into here called the Lily Ledbetter case. It was an equal pay case, a discrimination case where she was in dissent, and she had this very, very vocal dissent that ended up giving rise to maybe the first law that President Obama signed in office a couple of years later. Anyway, the point is Scalia and, and Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg both really reveled in the spotlight, I think, or at least they were, they were, they sort of rose to the occasion and Barrett's very different, but you're right. She has sort of the makings of a celebrity justice just because I think of the respect she and acclaim she inspires among those who like her. And I think she'll be a pretty inspirational figure to, to, to young women and to, and to women lawyers in the same way that Justice Ginsburg was for another generation of women. But I have to say, with no respect to Justice Scalia, who I, I admire, and other justices who give big speeches, and you know, sometimes even to places like AEI, I've always had a bit of quiet respect for the quiet justices. And for Justice Souter, who again, we could do podcast after podcast on everything I disagree with on his jurisprudence. And especially in things like Planned Parenthood versus Casey and a few other cases. That said, one thing that he did that I found I have great respect for is that he left, not just because he left and you know he's a he turned out to be sort of a rather liberal justice, and so I was happy to see him leave. But no, I I thought the way that he comported himself and the fact that he just decided he'd done this long enough and he just wanted to go back to New Hampshire, where you know I don't know if you know this, he's still up in New England hearing cases. Did no, you know I didn't. No. Yeah. He sits, we call it by designation, on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. And he, like a lower court judge now, just hears and, and helps to decide appellate cases. And he writes judicial opinions on the First Circuit. And I know that when he moved back up to New Hampshire, I think he had to get a new house because his old house, which was sort of a creaky cabin, it couldn't support his library, which is also pretty amazing. But I just, I really, really admire the fact that he... Not only was he sort of an, an intentionally reserved justice here in D.C., but then he just he gave up power and he left. When he left, I think it was Kermit, Professor Kermit Roosevelt, I can't remember precisely, somebody wrote a piece, maybe even for Slate, comparing Souter to Cincinnatus, which, okay, yeah, it's a bit overdone, right? But there's something to be said, I think, for the Republic, especially in, in terms of American, America's Republican tradition, to give up power and go home. So I loved Old Father's article, and I, I loved that he did the show. And at one point I raised in the conversation, 
was, if there's one justice who most resembles that today, I think it's Justice Alito. Justice Alito, it's often said, really has no real appetite for like Washington social scene, so to speak. I have seen him at events where he's not exactly thrusting himself into the middle of conversations. I mean, I think he, as far as I can tell, likes his privacy and, and is, is pretty soft-spoken. And one gets the sense that Justice Alito, who's still relatively young on the court, could someday just say, you know what, I think I've had enough. I'm, I'm going back home to, to New Jersey. I hope he stays on the court for a very, very long time. But one has always gotten the sense from Justice Alito, just his public persona, that as important as he recognizes his job is, it's not life or death to him that he's the one wearing the robe and that I think he understands, and maybe this is me just projecting on him, but I've always had a fascination with him and I've written about him a few times, that he really does have a modest view of his own place in history and that he won't necessarily have to have his fingers peeled off of the doorknob to get him to leave the court someday and that he'll go out on his own terms, which in Republican government is pretty admirable. Do you think that there's room for the ch type of judges and justices who do what Judge Rakoff does? He was the guest on our last episode, which was the recording from an event that we turned into a podcast episode. But in his career, he's he's really done a good job of publicizing areas of law that he sees as in need of reform. And there's a certain amount of public attention that comes from that. But I think it's for the for the good. And it ultimately, at least in my view, seems to improve constitutional government. Is there room for the more modest Justice Suitors and Justice Alitos and Judge Rakoffs, or should should courts skew towards one model or the other? That's a great question. I honestly don't know the answer, and I've thought about it a lot over time. I remember when Judge Rakoff started publishing those essays in the New Yorker Review of Books, and I have to admit my first reaction at the time was, wow, it's really something for a judge to come out so vocally for policy reforms. And I meant that like in an uneasy way. Like, is this really the job of a judge to come out and say these things? Now, there have been other judges like that. Richard Posner, a Reagan appointee to the, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in Chicago. He was a, a widely acclaimed law professor, a pioneer in the field of law and economics in the 70s into the 80s. He becomes a federal judge and he continues to write books. He continued over his career, oftentimes very, very, very controversially in ways that, again, made me think, boy, this is probably not the job of a, of a judge to write these books. But then you think back and, I mean, there have been plenty of others. Justice William O. Douglas wrote a lot of books, most of them nonfiction, but also false. He was a famous sort of fabulist when it came to his own autobiography and, and so on. But he wrote a lot of books. Justice Joseph Story, right? A century, you know, in the early 1800s, so a century before William O. Douglas, he taught up at Harvard Law while, while he was a justice. He wrote, he wrote treatises. There's a long history of books by Supreme Court justices. And I guess you can look at it both ways, right? On the one hand, these people wield immense power. And maybe it's kind of nice to know what's on their minds, right? So that they can, the public sort of knows what they're dealing with. On the other hand, it, there's something to be said for judges. I mean, there's something to be said, to say the least, for judges not venturing too many opinions and actually trying to keep as open a mind as possible. But then again, we don't want our judges to be total blank slates, right? Reconsidering the validity of Marbury versus Madison and everything else from the ground up. 
So I don't know. I guess maybe the way you put it is right. Maybe there's just room for both. It's good that we have some justices who are very vocal. Justice Breyer is going to have a book out in the fall. Justice Gorsuch had a, a book out last year that I wrote about a little bit for The Atlantic. So it's good that those justices and Justice Thomas and Sotomayor and others are out there writing these books. And Justice Barrett going to have a book? Yeah, she is. I'm definitely going to read that one. You already pre-ordered like 10 copies? Oh, yes. Yeah. It's good that they're doing this, but I think it is also good that there are justices out there that have no interest in doing this as sort of a silent reminder to the other justices to, yes, you know, say and write these things, but let's keep in mind, you know, ultimately the, the role of a judge. Yeah. This recalls something that Dahlia actually said in, in, the, in her episode about the importance of preserving the Supreme Court's mystique in the public eye. That doesn't mean that that's incompatible with the occasional book or public essay about a pressing issue or piece of judicial philosophy that's, that's worth exploring from a justice's seat. But at the same time, there still needs to be this, this institutional reverence for the, the important work that the court does. The irony of all this, by the way, is this is before your time, before I'm sure a lot of our listeners' time, but in the early 2000s when Dahlia really rose to prominence in Slate and, and now old men like me were reading her in law school, she was a great read because she was such a great burster of, of bubbles. Her coverage, her Supreme Court dispatches, her reported column was just hilarious and kind of lampooning justices and really kind of playing up the absurdity of a lot of what she was seeing. And I was actually struck in our conversation that she has become so much of an institutionalist. I guess that's just the process of all of us getting old. But it, I, I found that striking as well. I will say, looking back at the episodes that we taped, and I mentioned a few were think, that were looking back at, at Washington, the Schmidt and Tulis episode, the Stephen Howard Brown episode. We did an episode with Lindsay Shravinsky and her book on Washington's cabinet. Yeah, I find myself going back again and again to books like that on the moment that picks up right after the Constitution's ratification. Lots of people who, who talk about the Constitution care about the Constitution. We tell stories and we read with great interest the story of Philadelphia and the creation of our Constitution. When I teach administrative law, though, I always, on the first class, ask the students to put themselves in the shoes, not of the people who wrote or ratified the Constitution, but the members of Congress who show up for their first day of work and have to actually build a government. And then the Washington administration having to build government. And then even fast forward, you know, I just did a book review for the Wall Street Journal on, on Justice John Marshall Harlan, who was a Republican. In a way, I, I suppose the best way to describe him is just as John Marshall was the last of the founding fathers who on the Supreme Court tried to complete the work of the founding. John Marshall Harlan, nearly a century later, was the last of the Civil War, the post-Civil War Republicans who tried to rebuild government through constitutional amendments like the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and through post-Civil War legislation like the original Civil Rights Act and, and other laws that were passed to try to re rebuild the nation in the aftermath of, I guess, reconstruct the nation too. Those moments fascinate me because it shows how hard it is, but how important it is to think about constitutional government, not just in terms of constraints and 
prevent prevention of overreach, right? We think about separation of powers in the Bill of Rights as negative checks on government overreach. But in these other moments, the challenge of having an affirmative vision of constitutional legislation, what is it that we're supposed to do affirmatively as Congress, as a president, less so the courts, they really are a reactive body by design, but for the rest of government, thinking about their own constitutional roles, not just in, as a, in a negative way, but in an affirmative way, fascinates me endlessly. And, and I'm glad we did some episodes on that. I wish maybe we'd done more, and I suppose that's what we have future seasons of the show for. That recalls another favorite episode of mine, which was your conversation with Tony Mills, who is now an AEI fellow. Yeah. This episode was from April of this year, and it was about how science and government isn't just, science doesn't just direct policy in this mechanical, lifeless, automatic way. It's not just some machine that generates policy and comes up with a new law for Congress to pass. There's a significant amount of judgment and prudence that goes into applying what the scientific data says and how it translates into law. And, you know, I think that goes back to exactly what you're saying about Madisonian government. These negative checks on power aren't sufficient to constitute a Republican government. There, there needs to be ongoing judgment and application of, of laws, constitutional principles on an ongoing basis. And one of Tony's interesting applications of his idea was during the COVID-19 crisis. Science alone and, and having the numbers alone isn't enough to tell us what we do with the data discovered. We have to think through these competing goods and, and possible pitfalls before us before we come up with sound policy. And I think that's kind of, there's a continuity between how constitutional governance works, how to apply our constitutional framework to ongoing legal debates. And also that translates to day-to-day policy decisions that require both the data and what studies are showing, but also how those studies play out and in day-to-day debates about about what's best for our society. Now, I, I appreciate all of your thoughts on your favorite episodes. Listeners, if you want to hear her least favorite episodes, you're going to have to find her secret podcast online where she'll, she'll explain all of those. <laughs> my, my, my favorite episodes, my, I think looking back, my two favorite, I mean, here at the podcast, we love all of our children equally, right? But if I had to pick my two personal favorites, one was with Judge Ray Catholic of the Sixth Circuit in... May of 2020, it was early in the COVID pandemic, early in social distancing. And I had arranged to have him on the podcast, I think even before COVID really broke out, to talk about his his own writings on solitude. I mean, it became kind of ironic. By May 2020, we all knew a lot about solitude. But he he co-wrote a book. I'm all of a sudden blanking on the title. It's embarrassing. But I think it was called Lead Yourself First. And it was Sounds right. And it was the, the book was about the importance of taking time for solitude in order to become a more effective leader, a more effective practitioner, or whatever your, your craft is. Judge Kethledge actually has a, a cabin up on, high up on Lake Michigan, which he often retreats to to do work. I love that. My family's in the Midwest, and my, my in-laws, my wife's family, they live in a lakeside place way up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, one of the most beautiful parts of the country. 
And I've always enjoyed the, the forced solitude of being up there with minimal internet and minimal cell phone coverage because it really does, you know, allow you to escape this whole cacophony of news and tweets and, well, podcasts and to really try to think through more clearly what you're doing. There's some great writings on this. When I was a young lawyer, I was reading essays by William Derezowitz. He wrote some pieces for the American Scholar and elsewhere about solitude, which helped to inspire Judge Kethledge and his co-author in writing this book. And so I, I loved that conversation. I still love that book. And it ended up becoming a conversation about self-governance in both senses of the word. Right? Their book, without using the term, but their book really was about governing oneself and the sorts of character that, that they were trying to help promote, I think, are indispensable for self-governance, more broadly speaking. And so I, I loved that book. And if you haven't heard that episode and you're looking for an episode for a oh, summer road trip listening, that might be one. Another episode that I loved was later in the year, it was around Thanksgiving, I taped an episode with our colleague, our boss, Yuval Levin, on Thanksgiving in America and Thanksgiving as a constitutional matter. And looking back at the ways in which Americans, American statesmen, especially Washington and Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and others, thought about giving thanks within American government and American life. And I, I love that episode. I think afterwards, Yuval and I, yeah, it was afterwards that Yuval and I sat down and actually wrote up a piece together for The Atlantic on Thanksgiving as a constitutional matter. And I love that piece and, and I love that conversation. Adam is not just saying that that was his favorite episode just because Yuval is his boss. No, but I'm not not saying that because he's my boss. <laughs> One last thing, by the way, before we wrap up, having introduced Elaine, I do want to say before we wrap up that the podcast really wouldn't have been possible without Elaine's predecessor behind the microphone, Tal Fortgang, who's now in between years of toiling away as a law student. But the podcast really wouldn't have existed but for his help. And, and he made sure we knew that from time to time. And you can hear him in, in earlier episodes. Now, of course, in addition to some departures, like Tall leaving AEI to go to law school, we have some recent arrivals. We're taping this podcast right after AEI announced that former Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen is joining us as a, as a visiting fellow. In addition, Joelle Alisea, a law professor at Catholic University, and, and Will Hahn, a lawyer at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, all friends of mine, and I, I've long admired their work. I'm very happy to see that they're arriving also as visiting fellows here. And so we'll have much to discuss in episodes in the future. But for the time being, we're going to take a break. The podcast has gone fishing. We'll be back in a few months. In the meantime, Elaine and I are thinking about the future of the show in terms of maybe some things we'll do differently with the format, maybe even with the title. Just thinking through how to make the podcast the best version of itself in terms of thinking about American constitutionalism beyond just the Supreme Court and what it means to have and keep and improve constitutional government here at home. So please stay tuned. Keep subscribed to the podcast feed. If you follow us on social media, keep an eye out there because we will be back for many more conversations, which we're looking forward to. See you soon.